0: The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, Dayal Mohammed reports on the Video Description Restoration Act. Learn about a Braille transcription service which operates inside a California prison. Plus, relax and laugh with a blind comedian. But let's begin with Part 2 of Spring Fashions for Women. Here are Lynn Cooper and Laura Oftedal.
1: hemlines lines, that's an important uh, way to look current. And once again, modern is, is different than current. You know, modern, you can spend $9 million and be like a, a gerbil on a treadmill. You can never keep up with it. But hemlines lines are a very important uh, way for our women listeners to make sure they're current. Everything this season spring from micro minis, which are best left to um, the young gals, to uh, just above the ankle. The best is at the knee or just below and remember when we sit our skirt comes up a couple inches. So that's pretty much what we're seeing Laura for for the middle of the range of clothing. Colors white, white, white. Very, very big. Listeners, very important that we remember it's also very, very difficult to take care of. Black is big and our colors Laura, brights as you can imagine in spring from gold to bright orange and bright blues to kelly greens Accessories uh, are very similar to what we see in the clothing. India influence in everything from shoes to handbags, embellished, beaded. Uh, We have natural fibers being seen in everything from hats like raffia and twine and, uh, you know, sort of raw yarns. In everything from shoes to handbags to hats. Skins are very big, Laura. Uh, Skins such as... uh, Snakeskin, and that is either real, which is quite pricey, or faux, F-A-U-X, prints, uh, which means essentially um, imitation, and that's a good way, too, of bringing in accessories that are current. Arts and crafts look, uh, crocheted pieces, or they look like they've been crocheted, appliques. We're seeing charm bracelets. They're fun because we can either take our charm bracelets out of our jewelry box from junior high school and wear them, or uh, they are being done whole by by uh, designers that you can buy all together earrings for the most part are tiny belts are wide 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 at the waist not hanging low on the hips but at the waist and wood wedgies a la saturday night fever and the 70s are back to go i'm sure with the hippie look and sunglasses laura are large they are super size a la jackie onassis really Big, 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 big sunglasses, and those are fun if you want to go that route to pick up at a secondhand store. Makeup, as we near the end of our women's update here, makeup is soft, very soft, and there's usually one part of the face that would be highlighted, and we're seeing that if the eyes are soft and the cheeks are soft, then bold colored lips, and once again, a bronzer, be it in a powder or a cream, is much safer than getting a suntan and make sure that whatever you put on your face has got some SPF protection. And finally, hair. Now, this doesn't do much for those of us who don't have long, sleek hair, but once again, what is being shown on the runway is long, sleek, straight hair pulled back with bun or ponytail, and essentially no bangs or hair hanging in the face. And that is women's looks for spring and summer. <laughs> wow, and... Uh Very different, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we've we've talked about this before, Laura, but this is really an industry, and and sort of like when we see a movie we don't care for, we wonder how did that get made. Uh, As a friend reminded me recently, it's show business, and this also is a business, and what happens is they always carry over your basics. You know, we're always going to carry over, as you said, animal prints to some extent, you know, basic black and what have you or basic, you know, slacks and all. But what, what we're seeing is a need to change because that way uh, it keeps it fresh, but also it keeps their bottom line in the black because we are running out and buying new looks. So that <laughs> is um, that is what we're seeing for, for right. women primarily for spring and summer.
2: Next on ACB Reports, the video description restoration bills. Senate Bill 900 and House Bill 951. We joined Dayal Mohammed, director of advocacy and governmental affairs for ACB, with an idea about how all of us can take an active part in supporting
0: this legislation.
3: This is Dayal Mohammed, and I am talking to you right now during ACB's legislative seminar, which, as you know, took place in February. Now, before you think this is stale news, uh, I am actually here talking about video description. One of the problems with the video description legislation last year was the fact that we did this great push uh, during our legislative seminar, but the problem is, as the year wore on, it was really hard to keep up that kind of momentum, and as a result, the bills kind of stalled. And it isn't just from us. It stalled because... The Congress themselves tended to get a little lazy about it. So what we'd like to do this year, since this comes out in March, will be to encourage people to have a second wave of calls to Congress about video description. Now let me just give you a little background on this. Television today uses a lot of visual effects and scenes to deal with important elements in the plot. Kind of like, you know, during a mystery novel, the woman, like, glances down, and you see this gun underneath the bed, and the music rises, and then you hear her say something later, and then you have no idea where it came from, because, you know what, we didn't catch the gun under the bed. And so what happens is that for us as blind and visually impaired people, we're kind of left out of television because we can't access it sometimes in a meaningful way. And what video description does, it's where a narrator would describe some of the visual elements, such as the gun under the bed, so we'd actually know what would happen. And a lot of times there's some other things, like actions and costumes and gestures, things we might otherwise miss. In 2002, the Federal Communications Commission did require major networks and cable channels to put at least four hours uh, of described programming on television per week. Now, the problem is the National Association of Broadcasters and the Motion Picture Association of America said absolutely not. They didn't like the regulation, and so they took it to court. Uh, And they came up with all sorts of reasons. You know, it it was uh, limiting free speech. Uh, It was regulation by the FCC without government approval. And what it came down to is that the court said, you know what? Congress did not give the FCC the direct authority to do this. It said they have to require closed captioning, but they could only study video description. And so, what we're doing in the the current bills is saying no, no, no. The FCC does definitely have the authority to require programming. And we wanted to start them at the four hours it was at before, with the option of increasing it over time, hopefully at some point to even have uh, it full-time. As of January 1st this year, closed captioning hit the 100% mark. So starting January 1st this year, it has to all be closed captioned. And I'm like, you know what? They've got that for people who are hearing impaired, but there is nothing required for people who are visually impaired. And one of the things that we're seeing is, there's some residual video description left on television. Um, PBS is really good about it. Even Fox actually does relatively well. So we've got two bills. We've got the House version, which is HR 951, which was sponsored uh, by Representative Ed Markey out of Massachusetts. And what I'm very sad to say, and this is part of the reason why I want to have the second wave of people contacting the congressman in March, is we only have four co-sponsors. Lloyd Doggett out of Texas, Gene Green out of Texas, Chris Van Hollen out of Maryland, and Heather Wilson out of New Mexico. Out of all the members of the House, I said, that's it, just have five people. And then in the Senate version, which is S-900, we have the sponsor John McCain out of Arizona, Tom Harkin out of Iowa, Gordon Smith out of Oregon, Ted Stevens out of Alaska, and Daniel Inouye out of Hawaii. Not very many of them either. And if you think about it, there are 8 to 12 million vision impaired people in the country. That's a lot of people. And television is such an integral part of our culture, and it's just left out. Whoof, not there. And of course you'll hear from uh, the television industry and broadcasters, Oh my gosh, this is too expensive, we can't afford it. Now we all heard about how on Seinfeld and Friends, how each cast member was paid a million dollars per episode. Do you know how much it costs to video describe a program for one hour programming? Somewhere between two thousand and four thousand dollars. Now if you're paying a, each cast member, and we think Friends had like six major cast members, that's six million dollars just for the, the cast per episode. Two thousand dollars, four thousand, that's a drop in the bucket. It's nothing. So what we really want to get Congress to move forward on this So what I want to do is ask those of you listening, I want you to contact your congress member, say, hey, I want you to sponsor this legislation, co-sponsor it, sign on, send a letter to your colleagues saying this is good legislation, this is a good bill. And the other thing that's a part of this, which I want to also mention, is it isn't just about regular television programming. One of the things in there is that we are asking that a study be done about emergency information that goes on the screen on television especially with the recent disasters in the Gulf we've seen the importance of having emergency information made available and accessible to people with visual impairments and they always say we read whatever's on the screen and the truth is you know what that's not always the fact and so what that this bill also does is it gives us a mechanism, a way of looking at it to at least say, is this possible? And from there to move on to the next step of saying, you know what, it's possible, you need to make it happen. This is a matter of of personal safety.
2: To send comments and suggestions about this program, send an email message to reports at acbradio.org.
0: Bob Schmitz is the program supervisor of the Folsom Prison Project for the Visually Impaired. He explained the program to the assembly of the 2005 ACB Convention in Las Vegas.
4: The Folsom Project for the Visually Impaired was started in 1989 by the Folsom City Host Lions and the Lions International Foundation. And it's supported today by the District 4 C5 Lions in the greater Sacramento area. In 1989, we did 43 books on tape and had four inmates that did work at the prison. And it was kind of a part-time job for them. First year, they did 43 recordings. Today, we have over a 1,000 recordings of books on tape. In 1996, we started gauge cleaning and repairing eyeglasses. The reason we do that is because the United Nations figures that there's a billion people across the world that need eyeglasses that are in third-world countries. There are no optometrists for them. They just go without. When I took over the program, I thought, gee, we're doing 2,300 pair a year. Wouldn't it be nice if we had an automatic lens analyzer so we could do more eyeglasses? I actually went and took a course in grant writing, went in and worked with my inmates, and we wrote a grant for $9,000 from the Carl Kirschkessner Foundation, and we landed a Humphreys Ice Lens Analyzer. Today now we have two of those and we do 125,000 pairs of eyeglasses a year that we gauge, clean, and repair that get shipped all over the world. Now we turn those over to the Lions and to the Veterans Administration in California. The Veterans Administration uses our reading glasses and sunglasses for the uh, homeless veterans, and then additional reading glasses and sunglasses go to the homeless in the greater Sacramento area. So we're really proud of that. There was a little girl by the name of Amelia Diaz, and she was nine years old back in the mid-90s, and she was a gifted student, a straight-A student, and she was blind from birth, a very, very gifted child. Her favorite reader, because we were putting her through school, was William Cloud. He was In prison for kidnap robbery and he spent 12 and a half years in prison for that. In California once you get in prison it becomes a little difficult to get out if you have a life term. Anyway what happened was Amelia Diaz loved William Cloud's voice so whenever we did a book for her in school she always requested William Cloud. Her favorite books were The Indian in the Cupboard and William Cloud of course was American Indian and also a very good reader so Anyway, she wrote William Cloud a thank you letter, except the thank you letter was in Braille. But the mother wrote above the Braille. Anyway, William Cloud got the idea after he read this letter. Wouldn't it be nice if I could write back to this girl in Braille and tell her how much I've been enjoying helping her? So Aida Roscoe was running the program at that time, and she went to the warden. And she asked, you know, could William Cloud learn Braille? And and he said, sure, we could use a Braille transcriber in California, in the California prison system, because at that time there were none. So William Cloud began learning Braille. Fortunately for him, his teacher was what we would call in the Braille world a Braille Nazi, (laughs) Uh, meaning a lady who was very tough and went by the rules. Very, very tough. I mean, in my eyes, she's 10 feet tall, but in reality, she's about 4 foot 11 and weighs about 95 pounds. But she was very tough on William Cloud. And William Cloud became the first certified braille transcriber in the California Department of Corrections. Thanks to the toughness of Winifred Downing. So, I started going to the uh, California Transcribers and Educators for the Visually Handicapped Conventions. By that time, I'd had uh, four Braille transcribers. And, you know, I wanted to find some work for my guys. And so I met Rod Brawley, who works for the uh, Clearinghouse for Specialized Media and Technology for the California Department of Education. A very bright man, a very demanding man, and one of my heroes. He's done a great deal for the state of California as far as Braille for the children. If you were to Braille for the California Department of Education, you have to be good. You have to know textbook format, and you have to be very good. Uh, Otherwise, you cannot Braille for them. So I was walking with Rod Brawley and another man, I, I won't mention his name, and I said, Rod, I've got four Braille transcribers. I'd like to do, you know, we'd like to do some work for you. And this other gentleman said, you know, Bob, inmates can't Braille. They're just not very good at it. And I said, well, my guys are good. And he goes, nah, they can't. He said, men, men especially, just don't Braille that well. So after this convention, I went back to work at the prison. And I got on the phone, and I talked to Rod Brawley, and I said, Rod, You need to give my men a chance. They're good. They're very good. Actually, to be honest with you, I didn't have a clue. (laughs) I just wanted my men to have a chance, just one chance. Give them one chance. So I finally said, Rod, you owe it to my guys. Well, Rod knew that he was going to give me a chance anyway, and he did. He said, you know, Bob, I'm going to give you 18 second grade readers, and if your guys do a good job, we'll talk. If they don't, please don't bother me anymore. So, okay, that's fair. So my inmates are listening to me say, you know, Rod, my guys are good. I believe in them. They're the best. You know, they can do this. They got together, my four Braille transcribers, went in another room, and they said, man, this guy believes in us. We've got to do a good job. So uh, anyway, they worked very hard on these second-grade readers. And so a couple of weeks after they finished the books and we sent them in, I get a call from Rod Brawley, and I'm thinking, oh, please. Because, you know, it was going to be over before it got started, if Rod said no. And Rod said, you know, Bob, you guys have potential. So I'm going to send a textbook format expert out there by the name of Ann Kelt, who happened to be, like Winifred, another Braille Nazi. I love it. Very demanding, uh, wanted things done and done perfectly. So Ann came out and started working with the men. And after a couple months, I get a phone call from her, and she said, Bob, we've got a problem. And I said, Ann, what's the problem? And she said, well, when it comes to the formatting, William will get on the phone, and he will talk to me. And he will ask a question, and I'll give him the answer. Then Eric Schlager will get on the phone, and he'll ask me the same question, and I'll answer it. She said, so will the other two. She said, we've got a problem here because Braille groups have to work as teams, and if you guys can't work as a team, we're done. And I said, thank you, Anne. I'll call you back in a little bit. So I sat down with my four Braille transcribers, and I said, gentlemen, we've got a little problem here. I know when it comes to inmates, you guys don't like to share knowledge, because knowledge is power within a prison. Knowledge is power anywhere. But if you're going to survive as a Braille group, you need to work as a team. If you can't work as a team, please let me know because it's over, and I'm going to transfer out of here. We're done. So they went in the back, and they had a meeting. They came back, and they said, boss, because that's what they call me, we can work as a team. Uh, we will share knowledge, and we want to be a good Braille group. So said, thank you, gentlemen. So I called Anne back, and we moved forward. Today, we're one of the major providers of Braille for the 2,000 children that are blind in the state of California. Now, I'm very tough on my men. I expect impeccably perfect Braille, like Winifred Downing does, like Ann Kelt does, like Rod Brawley does. We are very demanding, and we want perfect Braille. Now I've worked for three Fortune 500 companies before I came to work for the Department of Corrections. Uh, Unisys, 3M, and Hallmark Cards, they all stand for quality, and when we produce Braille, out of the Folsom project, I can guarantee you it will be pretty darn close to impeccably perfect, because that's the way we do it. <laughs> oh, by the way, that gentleman that told me that inmates can't Braille, every time I go to a CTEVH convention, that man is standing behind me. When I turn around, I bump into him. He goes, oh, uh Bob, do you think you guys could do Braille for me? And I said, no. Because you're not the state of California, and I'm sorry, we are only allowed to do Braille for the state of California at this time. Although every book that we do for the California Department of Education goes to the depository, and it is made available to all 50 states. The American Printing House for the Blind, the major depository, so our books are all logged there. We've done probably about 700 books. Another thing I wanted to mention is that uh, we produced... About a year and a half ago, the first incarcerated inmate to become music braille certified in the history of the United States. In a year from last January, we were invited to Governor Schwarzenegger's office to talk about that. So we've been doing Braille for six years, but when we hit five years, we actually had our first certified music Braille transcriber, and that was through the help of Karen Gerald. He was the 18th certified Braille transcriber that's working today, certified through the Library of Congress. We now have two, and we're working on our third one. Before the end of the year, we'll have three music certified braille transcribers. Thank you very much, and I love working with you and for you.
0: (laughs) ACB Reports for March 2006 concludes with this presentation from Kenny Johnson, a blind comedian and motivational speaker who lives in Las Vegas. Let's listen to part of his No Technology Laugh Session from the ACB 2005 convention.
2: I'm just here for a little relief. Nothing I say is going to be important. (laughs) I don't have technical data or computer data or anything like that. So it's pretty hot out here for you guys? So I say thank God for the air conditioner, huh? (laughs) I was talking with two people from Florida outside and I thought Florida was hot and they said no this is hot. This is a dry heat but it's hot. One lady said She thinks she knows the difference between a microwave and an oven now. (laughs) It's pretty hot for me. I've lived here for five years now and I know it's hot because I was white when I first moved up here. (laughs) So I know it's hot. Okay. We talk about sighted people and blind people. I mean, that's what's going on here now. And um, a lot of things I don't understand. I think, you know, a lot of sighted people have selective amnesia. I was walking down the street and uh, the guy comes up to me and he goes, here, take my arm now, watch that curve. Watch this step. We're going to step down here. There's a car here. Watch it come on over this way, right? And I said, oh, thanks a lot. I said, do you know what a 7-Eleven is? He says, yeah, you see right down there about a yellow car? (laughs) And I'm like, no. (laughs) And, you know, this town is all about gambling, right? It can mess up your procedure when you're here and your, your way of thinking, okay? Even the panhandlers here are different. I was on the strip the other night, and this guy comes up to me and he says, uh, "Look, can you help me out? I need some money for food. My kids need new shoes, and I gotta pay my rent. And you know, my water bill is due, and everything. I wonder if you could help me." I'm like, "Well, you know, if I give you some money, you're probably just gonna go gamble with it." He's like, "No, no, I got gambling money." <laughs> I just need to pay my bills, but I got money to gamble with, right? <laughs> so I get a lot of things in the mail that I can use that, you know, qualifies us for a lot of things when you're blind. But I got a thing in the mail the other day, and uh, it was a parking placard that qualifies me to park in that handicapped parking zone at the mall, right? <laughs> but I tell you, I just can't find it, okay? Okay. <laughs> You guys into sports? You do a lot of things here? You've been on the tours here? You got some adventurous people out there that like to do like bungee cord jumping? Skydiving? Oh, yeah, we got some people oh. They're kind of nuts over in that section, (laughs) huh? That's the kind of blind people I like though. And my wife, she, she's blind also, and, um, you know, a lot of people ask me, they say, you know, Ken, how is that? Two blind people living in the same house together. Well, you know, we're kind of normal. We walk around our house like sighted people saying the same kind of stuff, like, where the heck are my keys? <laughs> you know, we got, how many married men we got out there by applause? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Cool. Now you can tell when something's wrong with your wife just by the way she's acting when you walk in the house, right? I can tell. I walk in the house and I know something's wrong. I'm thinking, well, first thing you think is, what did I do now? What did I do? But I walk in and I say, what's wrong, dear? And she gives me that classic answer. Everybody knows. Nothing. Now I know something's wrong because she rearranged the furniture on me three times this week. <laughs> you tell me nothing's wrong and she's messing with me, I know. <laughs> but I got ten good things that I like about being blind. So we feel good about this thing, don't we? We have to live with it every day. You better feel good about it and just deal with it and get over it, you know. The biggest problem that we have is sighted people and their attitude about it, right? I mean, we got a great attitude, but it's, you know, dealing with the general public is what bothers you sometimes. But I got ten good things that I like about being blind. You guys seen David Letterman? I'm going to count down from number ten, okay? All right, here we go. All right. Here we go, number ten. The smog in LA never blocks my view of the mountains. (laughs) Number nine, I never have to watch the Clippers play basketball. (laughs) Number eight, I can always get a job as a major league umpire. Number seven, I'll always be the designated drinker. (laughs) Number six, I truly read Playboy for the articles. Uh, Maybe that's a bad one, because I'm missing half of it, right? Number five, I can always get a job as a Mexican drug enforcement agent. Sorry about that one. I like that one, but that was kind of cruel. I apologize, okay? (laughs) Number four, I have an excuse for driving too slow on the freeway. Number three, I never have to worry about paying my light bill on time. Don't use them. Number two, if my wife asks me, does this dress make me look fat? Well, I can honestly say no. And the number one thing that I like about being blind is Michael Jackson still looks black to me.
0: Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports. Connecting the blind community around the world.
2: This is ACB Radio.